listening to a podcast from The National. After the momentous events that have taken place in the Middle East, we find ourselves again at a crossroads that can go anywhere. We have what could be the end of what has been one of the bloodiest and most convoluted wars that have ever taken place. Syria has been spinning out of control since the Arab Spring in 2011 brought the country to demand the resignation of their heavy-handed ruler. After the fall of Hosni Mbarak, Gaddafi, and other dictators in the region, the fall of Bashar al-Assad, the Syrian president, was expected to come quick. But almost seven years later, half a million deaths, millions of refugees, and a country in chaos, Bashar al-Assad still stands strong. This is Beyond the Headlines. I am Nasr al-Wesmi. Along with the Syrian war, we'll be discussing how Lebanon's prime minister's resignation has spurred a regional shakeup, and later, we'll hear the origin story of the UAE's most iconic cinema. Now, after the many years of bloodshed, the pro-Assad officials and members of the opposition are coming together. However, with so much violence and devastation having transpired since the civil war broke out, it will be difficult to patch up a country that's been gripped in disaster. To make matters more complicated, major regional and international powers have gotten involved in the Sochi talks, where the pro-Assad regime are convening, and in Liav, where the opposition is meeting with Arab governments. This is all ahead of a UN-brokered attempt at a peace deal next week. How it turns out will be highly unpredictable. To make sense of all the moving parts, I'm joined by Mina Durubi, who's been covering the coming talks and will be present in the UN-brokered meeting in Geneva next week. What is the significance of the Sochi talks and what is the significance of the Riyadh talks that are taking place before Geneva next week? On Wednesday, presidents of Turkey, Iran and Russia will meet in the Russian city of Sochi to discuss reducing violence and boosting the delivery of aid to Syria. Parallel to that meeting, groups opposing the Syrian president Bashar al-Assad will also meet in the Saudi capital of Riyadh on the same day. Uh, The Riyadh talks are set to last three days and are aimed at reviving the anti-Assad camp and forming a negotiations team to represent it at the UN's peace talks in Geneva next Tuesday. So, unfortunately, few have hopes that the Geneva peace talks will result in a breakthrough, as seven previous sessions between the Syrian regime and the opposition have failed to overcome the main obstacle, the fate of Bashar al-Assad. In terms of the Sochi summit, the opposition and other international actors view the talks as a Russian attempt to sideline the Geneva talks, which will only be beneficial for Bashar al-Assad's regime. Therefore, the talks aren't really expected to achieve any tangible actions. Moscow, which has had um, a military advantage in Syria, wants to focus on forming a solution with other regional guarantors, Iran and Turkey, while avoiding the UN's peace efforts. President Uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin will be eager for the Sochi summit to succeed with a deal signed off ahead of the Russian New Year in January and elections in March. On the other hand, the Riyadh talks aim to bring bring about the opposition parties uh, and platforms closer together and uniting them to resume direct negotiations in Geneva next week. Now, Saudi... Uh, is a leading backer of the Syrian rebels, supports an international agreement on the future of Syria, but maintains that that al-Assad 
should have no role in any transition to bring the war to an end. We were talking earlier and uh, you were telling me how that we've already experienced some hiccups in the peace efforts uh, with some high level officials resigning. I mean, this is the seventh time that they go at it. What, what does this mean? So the head of the main Syrian opposition bloc, Riyadh Hijab, resigned on Monday after a nearly two-year term, two days before the opposition groups and figures are set to meet in Riyadh. And a statement from him actually read, it didn't actually say that why he was quitting the Saudi-backed High Negotiations Committee. However, it referred to attempts by foreign powers to, go- to carve up Syria into zones of influence. And it actually said that those those zones of influence um, have had sort of side deals being made without consulting the Syrian people. And, you know, one can say that he was referring to the, the Russian-led ceasefire talks. This is worrying, as again, it shows that Geneva talks can actually achieve no breakthrough to the situation in Syria. So they're meant to reach some conclusions ahead of Geneva, uh, where both parties will gather. I mean, how likely, I know that you said that it's unlikely, but I mean, how likely is it to happen uh, now, especially considering that uh, you know, the, the regional developments have happened and the, the, the fabric of the political situation in the Middle East has changed a little bit. So, I mean, are we finally to see some sort of resolution to this bloody war? Well, the Sochi talks will likely be discussing a lighter version of the UN Resolution 2254. Now, that resolution was adopted in December 2015, which endorsed a roadmap for the peace process in Syria. The resolution puts the UN's print on a timetable of six months to create a transitional united Syrian government and approximately 18 months for a new constitution and democratic elections. Now, it's a step forward towards political change and solving the Bashar al-Assad question. But again, there is no consensus on all these points. So we'll just have to wait and see what happens after in the next following few days. You, you touched on this a little bit, how um, we have Vladimir Putin and, and Iran on uh, the Assad regime's side. Now you have uh, the Arab states on the opposition. But I mean, we, we have some serious political players involved. Could you just tell us who's supporting who in these talks and what implications does it have for the region? So the Sochi summit is hosted by Putin and is considered to be a highly symbolic, is considered to be a very highly symbolic meeting of an emerging three country bloc, uh, Russia, Iran and Turkey that already have significant influence in Syria and in the entire Middle East. Now, Turkey, Russia, together with Iran, are the guarantor countries which brokered a ceasefire um, process in Syria in December 2016, leading to the Astana uh, talks, which ran parallel to the UN-backed discussions in Geneva to find a political political situation or a political solution, let's say, to the Six-Year War. Now, on the other side of the block, you've got the Saudi-backed High Negotiations Committee, the HNC, which is the main umbrella group representing Syrian opposition groups. And along with it, they also have other opposition figures backed by countries including Syria and Egypt, who also exist and will be taking part in the opposition talks. Now, earlier this year in August... Uh, Moscow's platform had refused to participate in Riyadh's talks, uh, Riyadh's meetings, um, as they failed to come to an agreement with Cairo 
on solving the much-contested issue of Bashar al-Assad's future role in the government. Now, the HNC refuses to let Assad remain in power, um, even for a, for a transitional period. And that was backed by Cairo. So we can see these two blocks. You've got one block with uh, the three main geopolitical powers, Turkey, Iran and Russia. And then you've got the other side, you've got the Saudi-backed High Negotiations Committee, which is backed by Syrian and Egyptian opposition. And I mean, I know uh, you've been pretty clear on, on how unlikely it is for these talks to succeed. But I mean, if they break down, what, what can we expect? So, I mean, if these break, if these um, talks break down, which so far the Sochi summit seems to be sort of going on in the right direction. Um, on Sunday, the Turkish Foreign Minister Mavlut Kozoglu met with his Russian and Iranian counterparts in the southern Turkish resort of Antalya to prepare for the Sochi meeting. And Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, called the meeting very productive and said the three men had agreed on all the main issues. So, so far, it looks as if the pro-Assad bloc have, you know, they could have their main issues sorted and they could go into Geneva talks on a solid sort of foundation. Um, the next thing that's going to be coming out from that will be the Riyadh talks. And hopefully we, we can have a unified opposition Now on to Syria's neighbor, Lebanon, where the Prime Minister's resignation over relatively straightforward reasons has been marred in mystery. Some media claim that he's been under house arrest, that his family has been held ransom in Saudi Arabia in order to control the Prime Minister, Saad al-Hariri. Now that he's disproven the false media accusations, the son of one of Lebanon's most famous politicians has gone to France as a free man and plans on returning to Lebanon in turmoil this week. I'm joined by Dana Mokhalalati, an editor on the Foreign Desk, to discuss what exactly happened this week and how it will affect the future of Lebanon. What exactly happened with uh, Saad Hariri this week? There are still reports that Saad Hariri is uh, uh, under house arrest in Saudi Arabia, but I think the topic of uh, Hariri being under house arrest should no longer be an issue. The man has traveled to France where he met with the French president. And today he is expected to be in Egypt to meet with President uh, Abdel Fattah al-Sisi. As for reports that his family is still held, quote unquote, hostage in Saudi Arabia is absolutely ridiculous. They are Lebanese Saudi citizens and Saudi Arabia, like Lebanon, is their home. Uh, Mr. Hadidi has repeatedly said he and his family are fine. So have Saudi officials. I don't think this is news anymore, but the reports keep coming back to that. Whenever there's there's big news like that, you're, you're going to get different organizations reporting different things. But one thing that can't be argued is that the timing was horrible. I mean, this came within 24 hours of a bomb from Yemen being launched on Riyadh, uh, a roundup of more than 200 of the highest officials in the country, and then the news of the resignation. So, I mean, how did it contribute how did the timing of of uh, of the news contribute to the the fervor that surrounded his resignation I disagree I don't think it has anything to do with timing it's not a matter of timing the timing is fine it's the way his resignation was executed that was not conventional and that is something that even he admitted during an interview last week on Future TV the time is fine because like Mr Hadidi said he had to do something like that something shocking in response to Iran's grip on the country. It is not acceptable that we've got Iran's president 
blatantly saying that nothing happens in Lebanon without Iran. No independent country would be okay with that. Iran wouldn't be okay with that. At some point, Lebanese uh, politicians and officials were not willing to accept his resignation until he returned home. Now that he's uh, gone to France and he's already planning on returning home, what are they saying now? Well, that still stands. Uh, The Lebanese president is in the right to say that Mr. Hadidi's resignation is not accepted because it does need to be official and according to the constitution. This is now what people are waiting for. They are waiting for him to return back home to Lebanon and see what happens. Will he officially hand in his resignation? Will he change his mind? Does he plan on staying in the country? And who could possibly be the next prime minister? So many questions, but we'll just have to wait and see at this point. He said that he will return on Wednesday, which happens to be Lebanon's Independence Day. And he even said that he'll take part in the celebrations. So I think now it's just a waiting game to see what happens once he's in the country. Well, it's going to be quite the homecoming. But he's also planned on going to Egypt uh, following the Arab League uh, meeting. So, I mean, w- what's the significance of that? So, Mr. Hadidi's visit to Egypt comes just days after the Arab League meeting in Cairo, where they condemned Iran's actions in the Middle East. It makes sense that he's going to discuss that, especially since Lebanon was not represented by its foreign minister, Jibran Basile. Now, Jibran Basile is the son-in-law of the Lebanese president, Michel Aoun, who is the leader of the Free Patriotic Movement and an ally of Hezbollah in the government. Hezbollah was also criticized during that meeting for its intervention in regional conflicts. Uh, but its official position is that it is not sending arms to conflict-ridden areas. Hezbollah chief Hassan Nasrallah spoke last night, and he denied uh, that he was sending any weapons to Yemen, Bahrain, Kuwait, or Iraq. But he also said that he would withdraw his troops from Iraq soon once the central government announces officially that they have defeated ISIL. He did, however, say that fighters sent arms to the Palestinian territories and have taken up arms in Syria, which is nothing new. We all knew from before that Hezbollah fighters are fighting alongside forces loyal to President Bashar al-Assad. Uncharacteristically, the Arab League was actually came out with a lot of uh, decisions and agreements. I mean, what What is the significance of it and how is that likely to affect what's going on in Lebanon? So the Arab League condemned Iran's actions in the region and Hezbollah is financially and militarily supported by Tehran. I think it's going to affect Lebanon because we also have a situation in which Hezbollah is part of the government. And so we've got the lines are a little blurred over here, whether You know, was the Arab League condemning Hezbollah's actions or was it condemning the Lebanese government's actions? The Lebanese president responded to the Arab League saying that he does not accept that his government be associated with acts of terrorism or anything like that. And um, Abul Ghayt, Mr. Abul Ghayt, the Arab League chief, had clarified yesterday that nobody was accusing Lebanon of being involved in terrorism. But because there is this blurred line between the government and Hezbollah, who is a major player in Lebanon and a powerful player in Lebanon. Um, I think this is how it's affecting the country and why people are a little nervous. Hezbollah is part of politics. They're part of the parliament in Lebanon. But at the same time, they're an armed political party. Why is that the case? Hezbollah maintains that it has to carry its arms to fight Israeli aggression. And uh, like Lebanese President Michel Aoun said yesterday, was that Lebanon has been facing Israeli aggression since the late 1970s. 
And Hezbollah maintains that it needs its arms to fight Israeli aggression. And the last time they fought was in 2006. So it still refuses to disarm. There, ha- to disarm. there have been calls repeatedly by Lebanese politicians that Hezbollah disarm, join forces with the military. But this is something that they have refused to do so far. And I mean, what's next for Lebanon? Uh, it's, it's likely to change. I mean, what's, what's going to happen now? Nasser, only time can tell. We're going to have to wait and see. Once Hadidi returns to Beirut, I think we can start to get a clearer picture of what the situation will be like. El Dorado Theatre. One of the UAE's most iconic cinemas screened its last movie after 47 years in operation. As a cinema older than the country itself, the neon lights so characteristic of this old theatre have been switched off. One of our reporters, Anna Zacharias, interviewed Freddy Lama, who was one of the first to work on the cinema, and he tells us of the origins of this iconic movie theater. Can you tell me how you got involved with the Eldorado cinema? Well, I think it should have been sometime in 1969. I had just arrived and I was looking for a job. I wanted to, do, uh, to have a job in air conditioning that was supposed to be my specialty. And uh, so I didn't have much to do. And somebody told me there is a Lebanese uh, guy who's building the first uh, totally enclosed uh, building as a cinema house. And uh, let's go and see him. So I went to see him. And he was interested that I design the air conditioning system. At At that time, I had, I think, like two or three months experience design so I said I might as well uh, try it and um, he was I was impressed with the guy but he looked to be a very mysterious guy I never saw his eyes for like months after that he would always have dark uh, glasses he had a shiny uh, you know drawn back uh, hair he was always wearing black and he was driving an old black Cadillac and I said, this is interesting guy, you know. And uh, so we, we became friends uh, quite, fa- uh, quite uh, fast. And uh, he gave me the details and I started corresponding with the factory in uh, Lebanon, etc. And uh, the interesting part is that he had a partner called George. And George was the handyman. He was going to do everything, the carpentry, the carpeting, uh, the doors, everything. And uh, Atif was doing the financial side. He had a bag with him. He was always carrying cash at the time that was Bahraini dinars. So it's like 10 to 1. So he'd be carrying like uh, 5,000, 10,000 Bahraini dinars, like 100,000 dirhams. Because he was all the time paying cash for everything. Whatever they needed, wood, the the labor uh, salaries and wages and transport and so on. And I was impressed because uh, normally you don't find people like that. But the guy knew apparently what he was doing. And uh, George, his partner was superb guy. He was always on the site and was doing a great job. They were fabricating armchairs for the movies on site, in situ. And uh, later on I saw when they made a model, a bright red uh, upholstery. It looked very nice and so on. And eventually they got it done at, at very uh, uh, low prices. Because at that time there was a slowdown in Abu Dhabi. It was always going like three, four years. Boom. Why was there a slowdown? Always, always. It was, when I arrived in '69, that was when it was getting slow already, 
but uh, there was like a boom in 67, 68, and it goes slow for 69. They tend to overbuild, and then they wait a bit, and then um, it goes too slow, and then they revive it. You you go through this cycle, a smooth cycle, uh, throughout uh, the history of Abu Dhabi. So at that time, people uh, didn't have a job, so you could get uh, people for very cheap material, labor, and so on. And the big day finally arrived. It was done. It was perfectly clean. Uh, we uh, started air conditioning. Luckily, it worked very well. And uh, the first film he brought was Patton. Patton was the general, the American general, who was a war hero in the Second World War. And uh, so that was playing. And then he invited all the friends. Typically, they were now. El Dorado was a cinema before that. It was open uh, air, and mainly it would be the workers who would go there, the Patan, the Baluch, the Indians, and so on. They put Indian films and so on. You could hear the music when you were passing in the, in the, in the, in the street. And here, suddenly, it became the best movie house where all the expatriates, typically the Middle Eastern, you know, Syrian, Lebanese, Palestinian, Jordanians, all of these, and I'm sure some foreigners, they would go there. It was very clean, very well managed. Typically, Lebanese they knew how to manage it, and uh, the, the films were fantastic. The, the, the latest uh, successes and so on. But the day it was, I was in a way the I was very proud because I was roaming all the time with Atif, getting ready before the 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 movie would start, and then we all settled, and uh, there was darkness because the film was going to start. But then the screen went dead completely and everything went dead. And I knew there's something wrong. And you know, just possibly like 15 seconds, I hear Atif shouting, Freddy, Freddy is calling. It was full house. And he was panicking. He was screaming. So anyway, I stood up, I found my way to him and so on. And I said, what happened? He said, there's no power, electricity, something went wrong. So we rushed out of the movie house where it is now, it's to the right, there's a building now. There was like a small room, and that was where all the cables were there, and so on. And apparently somebody had opened the main breaker and stole the fuses and ran away. At the time, there were fuses, like big cartridges, and uh, the minute you take them out, it takes you like, like 10, 15 seconds, and the guy was off. Apparently, the competition, he never knew or he never told me who did it. So in desperation, you know, you can't find these uh, fuses. I told the guy, get me uh, like nails, big nails. And instead of these fuses, you know, I destroyed the, the size of electricity. That means if there was an, an overload anywhere in the movie house, it, that machine or whatever, it will burn because there's no protection. But it did the trick and power was restored and then the movie started and everybody had such a great time. And I would never, never forget that moment. And everybody was so happy that finally we can go to the movies. And uh, and it went on his success. It was a success story, and I don't know. Uh, I left for a while. I went to Bahrain and Saudi Arabia for about three years, four years, and I think when I came back, he had already sold it. At you know, it fetched a very good price, and then I found out that the new management didn't know how to run it. It went uh, quite. It wasn't at all successful. He bought it again, typically Lebanese. He'd buy it cheap, sell it uh, expensive. And he did it for the second time. And in the process, he started uh, his business of being a distributor for all the films that came to the UAE. By that time, the UAE was being formed. 
and so he moved on to Dubai and he was the guy the main guy who was importing all these films and uh, one day I met him there no I didn't I went to the Galleria and uh, that was uh, the new hotel yes. the Hyatt yeah. yes and I saw a beautiful uh, shop for uh, men's clothes Radio Drive Rodeo Drive and I asked who's the owner they said Atif Karam so I looked for him and he was there and we were very happy that uh, I met him caught up with him and he had gone into the business of Rodeo Drive he had one and I think by now I think he has like 30 or 40 in the UAE so he was a very successful uh, businessman I'd like to thank my guests Mina El Durubi, Dana Mukhalalati, and Anna Zacharias for recording the interview with Mr. Lama. I'd also like to thank my producer Kevin Jeffers. You can find this and all the other national podcasts such as Extra Time and Business Extra on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you get your episodes from. I've been your host Nasr Al-Wesmi. Thank you for listening and goodbye. <laughs>